1: flushcarecom weight loss.
0: The Late Lunch with Blackstone
2: Motors, Drahida, Dundalk, and Cavan. We have amazing offers available across the new and pre-owned Renault, Dacia, and Opel range. And a car finance specialist on-site to arrange a finance package that suits your budget. Low APR and zero deposit packages available. See BlackstoneMotors.ie Welcome to a brand new week of Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Hope you had a lovely weekend. Great to have your company with us again this afternoon. Busy show ahead. You'll love my Artists of the Week, I promise you. Pat Clark is with me to talk about pounding the pavements for the Loudmead branch of Down Syndrome Ireland. Another Pat Cummins is joining me on the show. He's a local author from RD. And we'll be talking about a significant Irish emigration to Michigan in the United States in the middle of the 19th. Century. We hear about one man's bid to put a roof over his house, to buy a home and all the difficulties he's run into along the way. It's some story, I have to tell you. And uh we'll hear from you, I'm sure. The number is 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show this afternoon, 1850-715-958 if you'd like to call in. Well, the story of the weekend had to be football and the European Championship finals, but one match in particular, Denmark-Finland, uh, coming towards half-time, I was watching the game with my son when Christian Eriksen collapsed and uh, Jared said to me, "He's gone." As soon as we saw the first picture and so it proved he was gone for quite some time. I have to say it was surreal, it was shocking, uh, watching the pictures and thank God they cut away and there was privacy given. But anyway, He's back and came back unbelievably. The work of the medics, the paramedics, the doctors there. He couldn't have been in a better place. They got him back with CPR and, of course, defibrillator we're going to uh, talk to Pat Smith in a moment he's an advanced paramedic you know Pat well he taught me cpr on this show back in 2019 and i had to use it uh, within a few months myself but first today a little earlier on i caught up with Connor Murphy and we spoke to Connor i can't believe it's 5 years ago on the show when connor suffered a cardiac arrest uh, while playing soccer in Black Rock uh, just outside Dundalk in County Loud. It was April the 19th, 2016. I spoke to Connor uh, earlier this morning and I wondered if he was watching on Saturday when Ericsson collapsed and did it take him back to that fateful day in 2016?
3: Well, Jerry, I wasn't actually watching the game live. Uh, I had watched a bit of the Wales match and I'd gone out for a walk and I was just in the kitchen and I received a text from actually the guy who... Gave me CPR. His name's Shane Donahue. He uh, he's moved to Canada just before COVID last year, so it's it's rare that I, I would get any messages from him. But then it popped, and he said, "It's crazy what's happened to Ericsson. I'm not sure what what he's talking about here at all. And I just went on. I googled it, and suddenly I spotted what was happening. Uh, I went in and switched the TV on, and you know, at that point, then yes, it certainly brought huge huge wave of of different memories and different emotions back, it was, uh, yeah, a bit of a step back, I suppose, for a few years back.
2: When you go back to 2016, that day on the 19th of April, just remind our listeners what happened to you.
3: Yeah, well, it was, it was an, the evening of, yeah, an evening match that we, we just play a, a regular seven or eight aside on a Tuesday night. And it was just towards the end of that match. I was running for a ball and, you very much like what happened to Christian Eriksen, I just, I moved and then suddenly I lost power and the lights went out and I, I hit the deck. And really, I suppose I've heard, I've heard Christian's comments since. It was that you know, he, he remembers nothing of the incident. Very much like that, I remember collapsing. And I remember waking up sometime later surrounded by all the, my other teammates and uh, an ambulance driver there as well, a paramedic there at the time as well. And I said, well, what's all the fuss about, lads? Come on, let's get back on with the game. But uh, no, that wasn't the case. I'd had a cardiac arrest, and you know my teammates had been giving me CPR for seven or eight minutes, and they would also figured out how to use the on-site defibrillator that was was provided by the local defibrillator group in Blackrock and Haggerstown. So yeah, a, a lot of a lot of luck that night. A lot of, of good things happened to me. Very similar circumstances to to Christian, except I guess you know mine didn't happen in front of hundreds of millions of viewers, but it certainly happened in front of about 17 or 18 grown men. And really, I suppose, Jerry, w- what what I thought of when I saw Christian Erikson going down is when I looked around at the the reaction of his teammates, number one, how quick they were and how quick they responded to him, very much like what happened to me. But also when, uh, and I heard it described on a different broadcaster yesterday, um, that, that as the teammates surrounded them, that they, they all looked like, you know, instead of looking like these hardened professionals, they really looked like a bunch of young boys. And it made me think about, you know, how the guys that, that kept me going uh, and brought me back to life felt and the trauma that they must have witnessed on that night. Because, you know, so that, that that was one aspect that, that I didn't really think about because I was so fixated with, with recovering uh In my own way, but when I think about it, like when you actually see the incident unfold as it did at, at the weekend it's it's really is it's a, it's a tough one to have to witness and be part of yeah so there's i suppose Jerry there are the kind of the instant instantaneous memories that that were brought back for me.
2: Isn't that amazing that really it gave you a view of what was happening around you back in 2016 as you watched those events unfold? Amazing, really. In the aftermath, you say yourself you remember nothing of the incident, but in the weeks and months and years that have followed, you know, how did it play out in your mind or what did you think of? Is is it with you still?
3: Yeah, yeah. It it doesn't go away really, uh, I suppose, but it's not something I try to dwell on too often but yeah I know. Uh, you know in the quieter moments it, it's always there I guess I always I'm always going to be surrounded by people who were there a lot of close friends a lot of people I know from the village you know peer group and so on So one thing I did say to my wife on Sunday is like just as I felt I'd gotten to a point now where where I, I wasn't the first thing that people when they see me would mention uh, now Christian Erickson's gone and brought it all back up again but you know when something that good happens to you, you can't, you can't deny it and you can't, uh, can't ever take it for granted either.
2: Absolutely. And on, on uh, another aspect of it, have you ever played football since or what has it limited your uh, participation in sport and what you do?
3: Truth be told, was my goal was to go back and play and I, I went and I trained myself up with that in mind and uh, started pulling muscles everywhere else, Jerry, and I realised I 46 <laughs> years of age, let's let's take a perspective here what what is it i want uh in terms of a sporting or you know in terms of keeping healthy and and what i want to do going forward so I, I sort of looked at something a bit more sustainable jerry uh, i play i play a bit of golf i i do a, a bit of yoga i i walk a lot um and I, I coach a, a kids' football team just to, to keep me uh keep me going and keep me out there.
2: Good on you, and you're right. Uh, Dwelling on it would achieve nothing, but what an outcome it was. And I remember the day you popped into studio here to talk to me about it in the aftermath of 2016. I I think it shows us as well, Connor, that, you know, look at the quality of medical care and everything that uh, surrounded Christian Eriksen on Saturday. But it just shows you that we can all do this, be trained in CPR and have access to the fibs and know how to use them.
3: Absolutely, Jerry. That's and that's the thing. It, and it's not been afraid to step up. And you know, if that moment ever comes, you know, don't don't feel that you'll achieve more by standing at the back. Get get stuck in. Get in there. Everybody who can do a bit. If you've learned CPR, you know, keep that training up. And just get in and help. And don't be afraid. And you know, defibrillators. Don't be afraid of the technology either. Like I've done the training. The defibrillator talks you through the process most of the time anyway. But, you know, always always know where they are and always step up to the place if the moment comes.
2: Well, Connor, it's great to have you with us on Late Lunch today. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, continued health and happiness to you and your family. You're an inspirational guy. Thanks, Conor. Uh, thanks very much, Jerry. All of that. Oh, great to talk to Connor today. It really was. And I think the most interesting aspect of that conversation was that on Saturday, as all hell broke loose on the football pitch to try and save Christian Erikson's life that Connor was able to envisage what happened round him back in 2016 and he only realised then how people were at that stage and uh, it's brought it all back to him. You heard him saying it there as well but he's a great story, he really is and wonderful that the people in Black Rock on that day knew what to do and saved his life and it does show you, I want to emphasise that again with CPR training, and knowing how to use the defib, we can all save lives. It's not beyond any of us. We're staying with the fallout from Christian Erikson's Brush with Life and Death on Saturday afternoon. Uh, My next guest taught me CPR, gave me a refresher. I'd done it years ago in October 2019. And my God, I had to use it. I had to spring into action myself in December of the same year uh, when I came across uh, an emergency situation. And he's been listening to Conor Murphy tell his story. Pat Smith, it's great to have you with us again.
4: Good afternoon, Jerry.
2: Thanks for joining me. Again, just listening to Conor there, it's, it's surreal, isn't it, when you, when you t- talk to somebody who came through this, Pat? It,
4: it is daunting. Um, some people do remember parts of the event and some don't um, but it, it really connor's story really emphasizes the importance of getting that help nice and early and uh, it, it improves the percentage chance of outcome
2: and on saturday speed was of the essence and thank god it, it's turned out well he is recovering in hospital i want to talk to you for a moment uh, uh, about cpr and knowing cpr being at the heart of it and a teacher yourself, do enough of us know it still, Pat, or is there never enough of us? And really, is it something that, uh, we spoke about this before, should nearly be a compulsory uh, module in education?
4: Yeah, absolutely, I agree. You never have enough um, because you sometimes people are isolated and unfortunately, they when they go into cardiac arrest, and there's nobody there to help them. And, and they, those are the people that unfortunately uh, will die. But the people that are in company, uh, be it they're accompanied by a child or by another adult, uh, and they recognise the signs of cardiac arrest and make the call and start CPR early, those are the people that we see with the better outcome as we we go through life. So uh, on average in 2019, we would have had uh, 2,500 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in Ireland. Mm. So the importance is, is up there. Uh, Our our colleges and schools have taken this on through the transitional years Mm. uh, and just through other schemes and joining voluntary organisations, be it Red Cross, Civil Defence Order, Malta, St John's, any other voluntary. And then you have our community first responder schemes, which is out there uh, where we have people, adults, that respond on a voluntary basis to people uh, that are in need. They're notified by the National Ambulance Service on a text alert. And they're carrying uh, defibrillators. For example, Connor referred to the one in Hagerstown. Mm. Uh, and, and that's one of our strong groups as well. Excellent. And there's many of those across the whole country. Mm.
2: And, and on the CPR, just for anybody listening today, if you haven't access to a defibrillator, the CPR is the most important thing to keep that going until you get help, Pat.
4: Yeah, I, I, and it, 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 it really is a chain of survival. So it's being early access. I've been making the 999 and the 112 call and knowing your air code, and we would have emphasized that, Jerry, when we were on your show the last time, uh, that gets us there quicker from a National Ambulance Service perspective. Early CPR, really important. If you don't know how to do it, um, my colleagues in the National Emergency Operations Centre will talk you through it. So they will advise you, if you've never done it before, to tell you what to do. And then defibrillation um, with an AED. And then, uh, obviously, going to be treated in hospital by by our paramedics, EMTs and advanced paramedics.
2: The whole a- area of CPR this last 15 months with COVID, what about the mouth-to-mouth situation? What's the advice there now?
4: Okay, so in, it, uh, from a professional point of view, we use different devices, but for somebody who's uh, a bystander CPR, we're just doing hands-only CPR. So that eliminates any contact apart from hands on the chest. Uh, and they need to push hard and push fast, about two and a half inches in depth to about 120 compressions per minute.
2: Hmm. So leave the uh, airway out. Is that the advice at this time?
4: That That's the current guidelines. That's the current teaching in the current COVID uh, pandemic.
2: OK, that's an important point to make. Putting a tissue across or a, a garment. No, that's not recommended.
4: No, we don't have to. And our, my, my colleagues, as I said, in the emergency operations centre will only advise you to do compression. Okay. So what you're doing there is you're uh, squeezing the heart chamber so they'll empty and refill mm. and circulate brain to the, to the vital organs. Uh, so when the ambulance service arrives uh, or a bystander with an AED, and that's attached. Uh, if it's a rhythm that can be defibrillated, that will take place. Um, We will use some medications and other advanced techniques as well. But we will see that all those advanced techniques, the better outcome is from the people that have got bystander CPR um, with the application of an AED. Mm. Uh, It it doesn't work out for everybody, Mm. but the greater percentage of people do well uh, from it just with with an AED.
2: Okay, and 120 per minute, that's what you're talking about, compressions?
4: 100 to 120 beats per minute. And it's important... To, to allow for that full chest recoil, allows the chambers to refill. And when you compress the chest down again, you will squeeze out the blood that's in the, within the chambers and it will circulate to, to the vital organs, brain, etc. Okay. And it's, cardiac arrest is not specific to age mm. or, or fitness, as we can see with Christian Erson. It, it was, that man is fit, well cared for. So he didn't know that was going to happen. It can happen to any of us at any time.
2: And that's an important message to remember for everybody. Now, coming to the uh, defibrillator, uh, ACT is the acronym Accessible, Charged and Trained. On the charge, Connor was telling me that uh, there was enough power uh, back then in 2016 to give him one shock with the defib, which was enough. But those three things that are accessible, charged and people know how to use them, all very important, Pat.
4: Absolutely. And the the number of accessible AEDs across the country has grown. Um, We would encourage people to register their AEDs with the National Ambulance Service. So therefore, if we happen to get a call in a particular area, we're able to advise them as to where the closest AED is. um, And they would send somebody to get that. But, However, we would start compression. So somebody would do CPR and somebody would go and get the AED. And the air code attached to where the location of that IED is important. And lots of private companies and businesses have purchased them uh, and they're available. Uh, unfortunately, there are some images on um, social media platforms where they're being vandalised. And that's sad because they could be the result of somebody uh, not surviving.
2: Good God! When I hear that, it's like life boys being thrown into waterways, you know, and not there when somebody needs them as well. That is a heinous crime, and anybody caught at that should really be punished with the full force of the law. I say it again; it's shocking. But uh, in terms of training, uh, Connor also mentioned that the defib itself will talk you through if you haven't been trained.
4: Yeah, as soon as you activate them, some of them, when you take them from their pouch or you open the lid, it automatically has three steps. And then it'll tell you to apply the pads to the patient's bare chest. And that's really important. The pads must go on to the flesh. So you're looking at uh, on the top right uh, and roughly on the left-hand side in the middle of their armpit. So that's where the two pads. Now, there are pictures on the pads that will show you where the pads go. As soon as the pads are attached, the technology within the device will detect that. It will analyze the rhythm, and it's looking for one of two rhythms. And if the correct rhythm is there, it will defibrillate it. If it's not, it will advise you to do compression for two minutes. And then it will tell you when the two minutes are up and you reanalyze again. And it will check to see because you may be able to restore that rhythm that we're hunting for ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what the device, and they're really fast. They charge up very fast. It'll tell you not to touch the patient. And you press the button that normally will glow the H. Uh, make it specific so some training is around that but it will tell you what to do
2: so there's a lot of technology built into these machines that can take a lot of the burden off somebody who may be using them for the first time. That's very important to say. But just to remind people again, first, port a call in an emergency: nine 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 or one one two. Have the air code. It's understandable if you're outdoors. It happens on a sporting uh, pitch or on a golf course or in the countryside. Well, you may not have a code, but they can work away with you from those numbers as well to get to you as soon as possible. Pat, look, as As usual, you're so good. Thank you for taking our call today. And certainly Christian Erickson has done a lot of people a big favour because it'll get everybody to refocus, retrain on CPR, check their defibrillators and get more and more people able to save lives. Pat, you're great. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That's Pat Smith there, advanced paramedic and ambulance officer, a really, really good guy. Make sure you know how to do it. That's our message to you today. I have a competition for you this week on Late Lunch. House Proud, Northlink Retail Park, Dundalk, they have a super sale of the century on at the moment. you got to check it out and they're just waiting to look after you. Sharona, Jessica, Dell, Rose and Caroline and many more are there waiting to talk to you about your needs. And they're open Monday to Saturday, 9.30 to 6 and one to six on Sundays. I have a 500 euro gift voucher for House Proud to give to one of you this week. So what we're going to do is play musical chairs each day with you and we're going to pick one winner each day and the five names go into the hat on Friday for that 500 euro gift voucher, okay? So how do you play musical chairs on the radio? Well, you remember musical chairs as a child. You'd be The music would be on if you'd go around and you'd dive for the chairs there and last into the chair, wasn't it? Like, if you didn't get a chair, you'd take a chair away. If you didn't get a chair, you were out of the game. That's the way it works. So didn't get a chair, you're out of the game. So today, I'm either going to do it on text or WhatsApp, the competition. Today, it's text only. Don't WhatsApp me. Please don't WhatsApp me. Text me, text me, text me. 086-1800-658. We have a lot of people in the musical chairs game. So let's say today, the fifth, the fifth correct, the fifth correct answer Will go through to Friday's draw for the 500 euro voucher from House Proud, okay? So, number five. So, you've got to be quick off the mark here. So, it's musical chairs. We're going to play the music. And when the music stops, you've got to tell me what is the next word in the song. So, when the music stops, what is the next word in a very familiar song? Text your answer to 086 1800 658 with your name and details immediately. Hit it there, Louise. On, (laughs) what is the next word in the song? Come on, Musical Chairs is on And late lunch. Get your answers in immediately to 086-1800-658. Number 5, I'll tell you later, who is number 5, goes through to the draw on Friday for that €500 voucher. We wish you well from House Proud, Northlink, Retail Park, Dundalk, Super Sale of the Century is now on. We move on on late lunch this afternoon. And talking about sales, of course there are lots of houses on the market, new and not so new, for sale. But I don't have to remind you that it is so difficult for many, many people to buy a home. And one of those people is a young man called Connor Sheehan. And we spotted his story last week and we just had to have a chat with him on late lunch. Connor, welcome to the show.
1: Good afternoon, Jerry. Thanks very much for having me
2: on. No, you're very welcome. So look, it's set the scene. Tell us about yourself. First of all, you're heading into your 29th year. You don't mind me saying that. Um, and you, you, you've been renting for some time. When did you start renting? You left home and rented.
1: Well, basically, I left home um, initially after I finished college. I did my master's in Dublin. Um, and I rented in Dublin and then I came back to Lim- er, to Limerick and I rented for about two years but i made the decision in late 2018 that i would move back in with my parents with the intention of saving a deposit um in order to be able to hopefully buy my first home because basically i the rent i was paying was going up and up every year at a rate that wasn't being matched at all by my own salary because Parts of Limerick were only made a rent pressure zone in 2019, which meant prior to that, every time you had I had a rent review, my rent was going up. Um, so I moved back in with my parents, um, and I saved and saved and saved. At one stage, I was putting away more than half my salary, mm. and basically, I was mortgage approved. I got mortgage approved, thankfully, in January of this year, and I thought, um, happy days! I have reached the summit um, and look, I've done the hard part or so I thought um, and that I would be able to find a house but at this stage I've been outbid on at least nine if not ten houses. I've literally nearly lost lost track at this stage. Every single property um, in Limerick and I know from talking to other people in similar situations up and down the country, it's like the list price is only a guide price and the house actually goes for about 20000 ish give or take over what the actual price is listed on, as on daft. So a l- number of houses have come up that I thought, um, you know, would be suitable for me. They were, would have been within my budget, or so I thought, but I would have ended up getting caught, which happened to me on a, on countless occasions, I would get caught in a bidding war. At one stage I was engaged in a bidding war in one house with four other people, and the house which was listed for 215 actually went for two, five, three. I checked with the auctioneer um, a number of weeks after the house actually went sale agreed. So that'll give you an idea of Mm. just how how tight things are at the moment.
2: My word, like 215 to 253, such a jump in money. So that's not possible for most people. And getting people into a war with each other is ridiculous. So, look, you, you you did the right thing. You moved back in with the folks. Can't be an easy thing to go back and everybody to, to get on again when you seem to be gone for good. You've saved hard. You've got your deposit together. You have your approval and yet still your search continues and really at this stage when you describe what you've been through Connor it doesn't look good does it at all no it doesn't and you
1: see the situation that you have at the moment is you have people who have mortgage approval um based off a period in time say when their employment was was not closed because of covid restrictions mm. so if your employment was closed because of covid restrictions and you were on EWSS or TW What that means is that will affect your either mortgage approval or your mortgage renewal. Do you have people who have an approval for a finite period of time and that they literally have to buy something because they are afraid that because they may have been out of work on a COVID payment or whatever, that they actually can't renew their mortgage approval once it expires. So you've an awful lot of panic buying out there as well. You've people buying houses they haven't even viewed just to get something locked down. And of course, like the supply of houses, because construction was closed for such a a considerable period between last year and this year, you don't have the supply um, coming on stream that you normally would and you also have the situation with because the, because of supply chain issues again due to COVID, the cost of raw materials has gone up, which has driven the price up of houses further again. So it's almost like a, a, a perfect storm um, mm. at the moment.
2: And 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 you wrote correctly when you said that the help to buy. Sure, so we're all aware of this was brought in with the best of intentions, but all it did was. It shoved up the price of houses. You know, the the scheme had a a crippling effect in a way on on affordable housing. Look, from your perspective, and I know you're a a local politician down there, you're a young man with an interest in uh, your community and helping people as much as you can. What's the solution? This is the fifty-four million dollar question. Show. It's on the television. Uh, if you uh, tune into prime time, tune into the Tonight Show. Debates on radio uh, on this station here as well. You know, there's there's lots of talk about this. But what do you think needs to be done?
1: Well, I think what you really need are supply side supply. You know, you need incentives to encourage supply and not inflationary incentives like, like help to buy and like shared equity, because all they do is drive prices up. And mm. I mean, if you look at, for example, O'Kulon, the um, the housing cooperative, they can actually deliver affordable housing for €210,000 per unit. They've actually done it in Poppentry in Dublin, mm. and they've done it at a number of other sites ar- around the country. I know myself from being on the council that there is far too much um, emphasis on what we call turnkey for the provision of, of social and affordable housing, and what that is is it involves the council, um, you know, meeting their social housing targets through approved housing bodies. So you have all this money being pumped into approved housing bodies, who are then going off and acquiring developments, often whole developments, from private developers when. The councils should be funded first of all and foremost to do direct build to actually build social um, and uh, affordable housing, and I think that once you have more supply there, the cost of housing will actually go down. But the issue is, like since two thousand and sixteen, we we had four or five very good years economically, but they were lost years in terms of in terms of house building. And that is one of the reasons why we've ended up in this situation, because rebuilding Ireland has completely failed. Because local authorities, I'll give you an example. When, when my colleague um, Alan Kelly was Minister for the Environment in 2016, he launched a very large um, social um, housing build programme. And I actually went through that build programme recently, and I'd say only a third of it was ever built and you have to ask the question, why were local authorities and why were local authority CEOs, you, you know, not to oversimplify it, but why were they left off the hook in terms of building what was on that plan? I mean, those targets should have been met. And I think had they have been met, we wouldn't be in as dire a situation as we're in at the moment.
2: Well, I can uh, concur with what you say, only from my local experience here in the Greater Drawd area where I've seen the Uh, Loud County Council just buy up developments, as you said, in block. Uh, Developers that applied for permission were building uh, private housing and the council have just come in or their agencies bought the whole lot up and they've become totally social housing schemes. Now, I'm not knocking, you know, people have to get homes and people, there are many people can't afford mortgages and things like that, and everybody has to be catered for. But I see you're you're distinct from that. You have a mortgage approved, you have a deposit, you want to buy your own place, and you're the generation of the block of people that are snookered.
1: Yes, exactly. And what's happening here in Limerick is because supply is so low for a variety of reasons, like new build houses in Limerick now, you would want to have two people on nearly six-figure salaries each in order to be able to afford a new build because the few new build developments that are going up in the last, in the last year or so in particular, they're touching maybe 300, 350, 400,000. And that's way out of the reach of, mm. of your average sort of income earner. I mean, the average industrial wage is 37,500 euros. And a single person on thirty seven and a half thousand euros would barely get mortgage approved, and two people on thirty seven and a half thousand euros each, which is the which is the the average wage, like they would really struggle to find anything habitable down here because things have gotten so tight mm. um between covid between lack of house building and between Government policy, which is basically funding AHBs and other investors and incentivising the REITs as well towards buying up housing developments wholesale.
2: Mm. Uh, We have the same, like you're you're just, you know, reflecting something that is a problem, as you mentioned yourself a moment ago, up and down the country, and we see it here as well. We just thought you wrote so... Eloquently, and you've spoken so well about it as well, and you've got to the nub or the kernel of the issue. So you believe it is time now for uh, councils to begin, Billy? Because I was reared in homes. I was reared in a home, a lovely home that were council built many, many moons ago, and that's how most people, you know, lived and got their got that roof above their their heads.
1: Exactly, and I mean, like, not to oversimplify it again, but like we did it in the thirties we did it in the 50s, we did it in the 70s. Like, we can do it again, but the fact of the matter is local authorities need to be incentivised, first of all, to direct build housing, but at the same time, their feet needs to be held to the fire in terms of making sure that when things are outlined in, in a strategy or a policy document, that they're actually implemented and and, and, and that the proposed housing is actually built Because that's one of the issues we've had in the last couple of years whereby things have been announced um, to much fanfare and then they don't actually get built Mm. for for one reason or another.
2: Mm. Connor, look, I have to leave it there today. I wish you well. I hope uh, that fortune shines on you sooner rather than later and you'll be able to say... I have a roof. I have a home of my own. Uh, I really do because uh, you have everything in place and what's beating you is the market at the moment and how crazy it's gone. I thank you for highlighting it today and wish you well. Thanks, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Connor Sheehan there joining us from Limerick. I just thought, uh, Louise and myself were looking at this, his case just reflected the situation that so many find themselves in and especially if you're on your own as he said they're trying to buy a house on one wage it's near nigh impossible to get a mortgage number one a deposit together and then approval and this thing of you know nothing gets up my nose more than and I've been through it and I've seen my children through it and others through it as well oh I have another 5,000 oh there's another 10 on that a jump 20 today you know that bull that's all it is, to be honest with you. I have to say, uh, you know, I, I I say it. there's a lot to be said for the system they employ. I think it's in Scotland as well, where you get a guide price and everybody puts in a tender in a sealed envelope and they're opened on one day and the highest gets the, the property. And there's none of this to and fro and are you being told the truth or porkies or what the hell is going on? Look, there's been that much talk about it. For the love of God, will somebody just get in there it 's not going to be done overnight. Sort it out, Gart Brooks and the dance lovely song, and your late lunch this Monday afternoon. Jerry Greed is alive and well and always will be in Ireland. Rich developers and uh, their cronies. the lot of them getting rich on the backs of hardworking people trying to get a house and get on with their life. That comes in from an avon listener this afternoon. Thanks indeed for your message. Just reminding you, if you're a music fan, then LMFM have a great treat in store, store for you with a new series called LMFM Saturday Sets. Saturday Sets brings top music talent to you on our Facebook page, starting this coming weekend with one of the country's favourite live acts, The Four of Us. They're brilliant. The lads will be playing some of their biggest songs for the, from the last 30 years. That Saturday Sets with The Four of Us, live this Saturday from 9 o'clock on on the lmfm facebook page and just in association with our competition all this week on late Lunch, uh, in association with house proud northlink retail parkland dock just reminding you that today you can win 200 a 200 euro voucher this very day uh, on LMFM's Facebook page as well. So a lot going on on our Facebook page. Check it out there. 200 two euro voucher for House Proud, Northlink, Retail, Park and Dock there today as well. And I'll tell you who's going through to Friday's draw for the 500 euro voucher here on Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Jonah and the whale, Louise. Jonah and the whale. W- was Jonah swallowed by the whale? Just remind me. What? And, yeah. And, and and you know when you and call, he was in the stomach and seemingly he prayed to God that he'd change his life around and everything. And then God seemingly ordered the whale to
0: vomit <laughs> him back up.
2: Well, Louise, let me tell you, there's a modern day Jonah. His name is Michael Packard, right? He's a US lobster man. He dives for lobsters uh, off Provincetown in Massachusetts. And he was diving uh, uh, recently and last week. And he was swallowed by a whale, Louise. Crazy. A whale swallowed him. No joking. There was two of them. They worked together. He said he felt a bump, Louise. And everything (laughs) More than a bump. Everything. A bump in the night. (laughs) Everything went black dark. And genuinely, he was in the stomach of the whale. Wow. And you know all I'm thinking, the whale then for some reason, he must have prayed like Jonah did, and God must have been listening. The whale, in within a, a short space of time, you know the way they surface. Mm. The whale surfaced, and opened his mouth and ejected them out with a with a rush. He must have felt. You see, they have oxygen cylinders on. you know what I mean? Diving down mm. for the and the mask and everything on, going down for the lobsters. He must have felt them in his stomach,
0: or maybe he just didn't taste nice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but Jesus, if you had those stutters? Oh, that's so scary wouldn't it be but, but imagine if it, those cylinders in the stomach if they exploded or whatever that would be the end of Mr. Whale as well a humpback whale they're not known actually for doing this how it's an absolute freak but he was on television I was watching him on Saturday morning recovering he's out of hospital he had injuries and that wouldn't he, he yeah. absolutely injured But serious
4: it, injuries like was well it?
2: he had to be he was in hospital for a few days not life threatening but his, his mate the guy who was um, diving with him you know brought him to safety he witnessed the whole thing the fellow who was with him saw what happened and it was just incredible so there you are modern day you can check it out Uh, it's it's all up there on social media the story and everything about it his knee was dislocated and uh, he had some cuts and and bruises on him but that was all really you know Uh, he was lucky anyway he's a lucky boy anyway he's not going to stop He's he'll be diving he said again he's way down for lobsters again soon I love lobster I have to say don't have it that often but nice and tasty it is in a lobster roller there you
0: go that's what the lobster feels when he's yeah. in your mouth
2: <laughs> poor Mr Lobster anyway well done to Michael Packard. Cat of Nine Lives, well that's one of them gone for sure when you think about it. But um, in a, what a story when yeah, I saw it, amazing. I said, I'd have to mention it today. Uh, what about your home county yesterday, Meath, beaten by Kildare, they are not promoted to Division 1. Did you see the kerfuffle at the end of the game? <laughs> it wouldn't be a Meath match without kerfuffle. <laughs> Ooh, with that coming from a Meath woman herself, I did not say that. <laughs> Anyway, Kerfuffle, two of them were sent off. Uh, Kildare had uh, a man sent off as well. That uh, They both ended with 13 players. But a spit, a, a, a Kildare player spat on a mead player. Now, I have to say that, Louise, is the lowest of the low. Yeah. Agreed You know at this time Any time I shouldn't say at this time Any time To spit on an opponent My God almighty And uh, Conor McGill He's a quiet lad uh, He is the player Andy McEntee after the game Talking about it He said he was spat at And normally the chap is placid But if someone spat at you You know Mm. yourself uh, he reacted to it, but there you go. What uh, was
0: it over? Was it just a
2: ah? You know, there was a bit of friction at the end. end. Like Kildare won, like, and and they stay, uh they are in Division One next year. Me, they're in Division Two. But it could be costly. The two players could be suspended. They have injuries as well, and they play Carlo or Longford in the first round of the Leinster Championship soon. So there'll be repercussions there, but not nice. Irish immigrants in Michigan: a history and stories by Pat Commons and Elizabeth Rice, Rice has been uh, launched recently, and one of the co authors is joining me on the show originally from rd pat Cummins. good afternoon
5: hello jerry thanks for being on your show
2: not at all delighted to have you with me fascinating book let me ask you first off could it have been any other u.s state with similar stories and irish connections why michigan
5: oh that's a good question uh, jerry well it just happens that i've been to michigan so often i thought i could do it in for michigan There are many other stories about the Irish in Boston and New York and various other places. But so few and very little has been written about the Irish immigrants in Michigan. Mm. Very, very little.
2: And your co-author, Elizabeth Rice, you're related. She's on the other side. She's over there. You're here.
5: Oh, yes. Elizabeth is my cousin and co-author and uh, she lives in Michigan. And I've been over to see her many, many times
2: during the summer months, of course. Yeah, Okay. So there's a a strong connection between yourself and Michigan, and that's why it is. Now, you've done this brilliantly, may I say, because there are 83 counties in Michigan, and there's a story from each county included in this book about a family that had to leave Ireland. And again, Pat, we're talking about this was due to the, primarily the famine? Yeah, the famine,
5: definitely. There was... Big exodus of Irish immigrants during and after the famine, but also before the famine, from 1800 onwards. Yes, mm-hmm. there were there were quite a few Irish who went to Michigan uh, during the early 1800s, but most of all during the famine and after the famine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
2: And a million, we know roughly, it's hard to put a, a, a definitive figure on it, perished in the famine and another million or more emigrated as well. And like, when you talk about emigration, uh, What about a five-week journey, and, and many died on those ships, didn't they? Thousands
5: have died. On, they say that about one-fifth of the people who got on a ship did not arrive in America or in Canada. About one-fifth, they died in coffin ships. Uh, they were hired, some of them were hired by landlords who wanted to get rid of their tenants and, and uh, sent them with uh, great expectations of going to America. But some of those coffin ships were terrible conditions. Mm. Many, 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 many died.
2: Yes, on the way. I was just looking at the comparison between the two places. You know, you talk about Michigan. In the whole island of Ireland, we have almost 7 million people. There are 10 million people in Michigan. And Michigan State, folks, just to context it, there's 83 counties, we have 32. It's about three times in area the size of Ireland. So it's a vast, vast place. And it's up near the Great Lakes, Pat. That's right.
5: They're up beside... Uh, Michigan is surrounded by the Great Lakes, Lake Superior, Lake Erie, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Mm. and it's a wonderful, wonderful state to visit as I have found in in the past.
2: Yes, and the opportunities, like when you think about America, you mentioned the big cities like New York and Boston and the other states, there are many tales. But around this time, there was a particular uh, opportunity. Land was available for people to set up there.
5: Oh, yes. The federal government in in Michigan at the time wanted immigrants uh, to buy up land. And land was so cheap, they gave away land at a rate of $1.25 an acre, which was marvellous. And uh, if, if the land was very bad, if it was swampy land, if it was a wilderness, and if someone lived on the, in that swamp or in that land for 18 months, they got the land for 50 cents. Quite a bargain.
2: Cheap a at lot the lot price, I was just going to say, Pat. Indeed, when you think of those figures, uh, they are tiny in today's context. What did uh, the Irish who arrived there mostly work at? We know, right, land and farming. Were there any other skills, common skills, they brought to Michigan?
5: Oh, yeah, they, they, they brought uh, their, their own skills of blacksmithing. They also uh, were in the lumber trade. Of course, lumbering was a big thing. Copper mining, uh, iron mining, and uh, but of course, what the Irish really wanted, the ones that I'm writing about, mostly wanted the land. They wanted land, they had no land, as you know, back home, and they just wanted land as, as much as possible.
2: Mm. Yeah, we and they worked hard for it. Yeah, so hard work is right. Uh, look, there are 83 different... I don't know how you, you settled on, on each of the stories and the counties and, look, we wouldn't have time to delve deep into it, but there's one I just want to mention and it's number 47, Livingston County.
5: Hugh McCabe was born in 1816, the same year as the burning of the Wild Goose Lodge and Hugh McCabe, he had one of the people who are alleged to have been in, involved in the burning of the... Of the uh, Wild Goose Lodge was a Hugh McCabe, but this Hugh McCabe had nothing to do with uh, the, uh, the burning of the Wild Goose Lodge. It happened that he was born in 1816 and was from
2: R.D. Yes. And uh, the was it his children or who went to uh, Michigan then?
5: Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, Hugh himself went, went to, to Michigan. Um, he... Uh, he was one of four of a family.
2: Mm.
5: And uh, he had, he had a twin brother. He, his brother, twin brother was James. And his, his parents were Felix and, and Rose McCabe. And they lived They were in R.D. And in 1830, when Hugh was 14 years old, he and his five siblings left Ireland with his parents. And they landed in New York. And there was plenty of work to be done up in upper New York State, in Seneca Falls, where, were, where the lumbering was the main industry. So they easily got jobs there. His father, uh, Felix, got a job there and uh, raised his family as best he could. And then in 18, when Hugh, his son, who uh, was 20 years of age, he married uh, Bridget Monahan from County Sligo. And then Hugh brought his family to Livingston County where he built a log cabin and it took three years to clear the land uh, and and uh, started the crops. Now, clearing the land was a big, big job. They, they had to they, they, When the lumber barons had left cutting down the trees, there were stumps, stumps of trees left mm. and it was up to Hugh to put out those stumps with help from his neighbours. And one of his neighbours was another RD man, Thomas Boylan. And both of them, they cleared the land and eventually uh, got a few acres uh, cleared. He had 80 acres altogether. He was able to buy 80 acres uh, at a cheap rate. And uh, so, but of course, they had a very tough time with it. Mm. Hugh McCabe had a very, very tough time. In 1861, the Civil War broke out, and three of his sons, three of his sons enlisted. Uh, Their names were, I think, I remember now, were Felix and James and Patrick. But Patrick died from measles before he he got actually into the war, and Felix and James were captured and imprisoned in the most dreadful, dreadful Confederate prison. Uh, in Georgia, and Felix died in the prison mm. from starvation or dysentery or whatever. And when uh, Felix, uh, when the, when, the, sorry, when James uh, got out of prison, he returned home. and But Hugh, he remained on his farm with his other son. And one of the things about Hugh was his neighbors used to call in to see him. From time to time, and they said, uh, coming in when they would knock on the door, they would say, in a true Irish tradition, "Isn't self-in," <laughs> and and you would say, "Indubitably, <laughs> uh, of course," and he was known as Hughie, uh, indubitably. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the nickname stood a typical Irish thing, is right. But sadly, when he died uh, in nineteen o nine, his wife had predeceased him, and his children. There was none of them left.
5: None of them had left. None shocking? of them had left. Yeah, none of them. They, left. All, they, they all had died. The yet. family
2: died out after making that long trip, clearing the land, making a life for themselves. Serving in the war at the end of the day, not one of the McCaves with big links back to Ardee and County Louds survived. Not, that? one,
5: not, not one of them left, but has to remember, he's still remembered because yes. there is a road and a bridge named after him. There the you McCabe go. Road and the McCabe Bridge,
2: still there. Isn't that fantastic? It really is. Anyway, there are many more stories like that. I just picked out that one because of the Loud Connections. There's 83 of them in the book. Uh, you've been hampered, obviously, with the with the COVID, and you would have had a big launch about this, etc., just before I ask you about the book and where it is, today, survivors, obviously, um, I mentioned the McCabe's, didn't survive, but lots of Irish families have survived to, de- to today and their uh, descendants have prospered.
5: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely did. And I've met some of the descendants of those uh, Irish immigrants and they're all wonderful people. There was one particular lady, Dorothy Ma- Mallory, and she in- introduced me to the area that you live which is called Irish Town. But you will never find Irish Town on the map. Mm. Irish Town, it was called Irish Town because of the Irish settlement were there. The number of Irish uh, names crop up everywhere. But this place in Gratiot County in Michigan, it was called Irish Town by the local people. And this Dorothy Mallory she was a wonderful, wonderful person and she gave me the whole history of the, of the parish and of the area. Mm-hmm. And uh, to meet those people was, was a wonderful thing to do. And wow. there were many, many others we met as well. Yeah. And they were, they were so welcoming.
2: Yeah, and it's, uh, they, cherish, uh, they uh, cherish their history, they treasure it, and I'm not surprised they do. You've done a wonderful job yourself and Elizabeth on this book. It's published by the History Press. Where is it available?
5: Now, I was going to just mention that to you, Jerry. Now, of course, here in, I'm living up here in Ratmines in Dublin at the moment, and Alan Hannah's bookshop in Ratmines is a wonderful bookshop, and it's stopped in there. Yeah. Now, back home, of course, I have to mention the local bookshops, O'Brien's uh, stationery shop in in Market Street, and, of course, my nephew's shop, Martin Cummins, in Market Street as well. He stocks a a number of the books in Dundalk. We've got Rose Bookshop in Park Street. And in Drogheda, we've got uh, books in Academy Bookshop in
2: Southgate. Oh yeah, she's great. We know her well, yeah. Yeah, she's great. So there's a good spread. Look, there's a good spread there. And is it online? Can you get it online? Buy it online? Oh yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Amazon, Amazon, the book is there as well. Irish Immigrants in Michigan, A History and Stories by Pat Commons and Elizabeth Rice. You've done really well. You really have. It's a lovely, lovely book. And I'm delighted to have a wee chat with you about it today and the McCabe family link in RD, uh, which you've told me about. Pat, wish you well. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you very much, Gerry. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That's uh, Pat Cummins there, author of Irish Immigrants in Michigan. And Eugene's been on to say, A Saturday last, I was travelling towards Newry, close by Dundalk at around about 2.30 in the afternoon, and I saw about 30 cars reversing back up the motorway. I continued on towards Newry and I noticed no accident or delay but it was an absolute bizarre sight, Jerry. I wanted to know if anyone else saw this extremely dangerous action or reported it or what was going on. Anyone help us there or help Eugene? 30 cars, half past two, Saturday afternoon, on the M1 motorway near one of the exits for Dundalk. 30 cars reversing back up the motorway. Jeepers, I'll tell you, that is one dangerous thing to reverse. Wherever you are, you know, on access roads or motorways, it really is. Anyone know anything about that? Can throw any light on it? Let us know. 086 1800 658. WhatsApp or text me to the show. eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight if you'd like to call in. Lex Luthor is dead. Tell me more, Louise. Lex Luthor is dead. Who uh, are we talking about here? Lex Luthor from Superman. Oh no! Oh yeah! Oh, tell me more. Who is it? You might the actor, know him from, The actor is it? Yeah, Ned Beatty.
0: Ah, he was in Deliverance. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. A yes. lot of people would probably know him better from the Deliverance films. Be, be a good he was age. Eighty-three. Was he, was he in Ah, oh, look at this. Yeah. Hell. And he had Irish roots. Had he? Mm-hmm. So Lex Luthor from Superman. He was brilliant in Superman, wasn't mm, he? They were great movies. They really were. And then. Christopher, play, who was the actor Christopher, Christopher Reeve, Reeve yeah. and the accent—you remember that poor man mm. <gasps> was paralysed from the neck down. It's
0: horse riding, accent, yes, it? Fell, uh,
2: from the and and could only blink his eyes and that, and survived for quite a number of years before he passed away. Uh, it, was it the music or him flying or what? Were they magical movies, Superman?
0: Yeah, they yeah. were, the fr- they, especially the first, the first yeah. one.
2: The first one, the first one. Lois Lane. Ah, Lois, she loved him, didn't she? And you know, the, the pretense of is he or isn't he? Is he Superman? Or, you know, that type of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: amazing. Once he took off the glasses, he didn't recognize him. Yeah, yeah. It
2: was like Batman. <laughs> you remember <laughs> 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 Batman? Is he Batman? Is he? West? Is that him? I'm sure it's him. And he just disappeared and next thing he's there to say. But you know what? It's the imagination, isn't it? Letting it run and uh, we love it. Anyway, remember. So simple as well. Yes, yes. uh, Ned Beatty today who played Lex Luthor in Superman. Oops. (laughs) Yes, oops is right, Miss Louise Walsh. Sorry about
0: that. I
3: obviously, I got it wrong.
2: Yes, Declan, thank you, my good buddy Declan. (laughs) Keegan was on to say, you better check that, uh, about uh, Lex Luthor and Ned Beatty. He actually played, Ned Beatty played Otis. The idiot henchman of Lex Luthor. The sidekick. Yes, in the Superman film. Uh, We did uh, Gene Hackman a big disservice there, to be honest with you. Anyway, glad (laughs) to clarify, Declan. Thanks a million for keeping us on the straight and narrow. See you soon. Anyway, just to let you know uh, that uh, Karina O'Malley got uh, the competition right today. And she is texter number five to the show. So well done to you, Carine O'Malley. Wood we were looking for. Knock on wood was the next word in the song. And you're in the hat now for the €500 voucher from House Proud Northlink Retail Park Dundalk who have their super sale of the century on at the moment and don't forget there's a 200 euro voucher to be won today just go on to our Facebook page LMFM's Facebook page best of wishes to you anyway Karina, you're in for Friday's draw in the hat one of five and we'll bring you another musical chairs tomorrow so you'll be all ready for that one Um, just reminding you Solo at Home a superb initiative by the Dread Art Centre and LMFM Radio brings together a diverse range of brilliant Irish artists performing from the intimacy of their own homes. The fifth episode is available to watch now and features Nigerian Irish performer, poet Da Gogo Hart, Neve Regan, Thomas Walsh and Roisin Ward-Morrow. Grab a cup of tea or coffee and head over to Dread Art Centre's YouTube channel and enjoy this week's episode. Now, my Artists of the Week. This week are one of the most successful pop groups of all time. Internationally, they've had 56 number one singles and 39 number one albums. Incredible for a five piece outfit who were manufactured and modelled on US group New Kids on the Block. You see, it was Nigel Martin-Smith's idea. He wanted to create a UK based vocal singing group after linking up with 18-year-old singer-songwriter Gary Barlow. He then decided to base the group around Barlow and held auditions around Manchester in 1990, where he recruited Howard Donald, Mark Owen, Jason Orange and a 16-year-old fella called Robbie Williams. They were initially called, did you know this, Kick It!, But this was short-lived as Take That was born in 1990. It took a couple of years before they made their chart breakthrough and it took a cover of the 1975 Tavares hit It Only Takes a Minute to Make the Breakthrough in the Charts. Their first album? Take That and Party was also released in 1992 which included this one that reached number 7 in the UK charts in October. you got to listen to the saxophone folks. Ah!
5: I'm
2: swaying from side to side in the studio with the light on on my mobile phone. (laughs) Ah, yes take that my artists of the week this week love that one a million love songs and we'll have more uh, on that take that and another great song for you tomorrow round about this time on late lunch thank you Greg for the clarification Eugene wondered why there were 30 cars approximately reversing on the M1 on Saturday uh, round Dundalk exits at 2.30 Greg says there was a car in the divider between junctions 19 and 20 with an emergency vehicle in attendance at the scene and that was the reason. Thank you indeed for that, Greg. Appreciate it. Now on uh, LMFM Radio, all of this month, we're pounding the pavements. Yes, uh, raising money for the Loud Mead -Mead branch of Down Syndrome Ireland. And we're going to have a chat about it next with a man who's a very good friend of ours on Late Lunch. Pat Clark is here in a moment. Reminding you again we're teaming up with the Loud and Mead branches of Down Syndrome, Ireland, to get you out walking or running over the next few weeks and to raise funds for the local branches here in the northeast. Yes, we're asking you to register for Pound the Pavements. By logging on to myrunresults.com and walking a minimum of 21 kilometres between now and the 30th of June. It's just a tenner to register per person, 20 for a family. You'll get more information on lmfm.ie or dsilmb.ie. So let's get a little exercise and help make a difference to our local Down syndrome organisations. You can register today on myrunresults.com and we're going to talk about it for the next few moments with Pat Clacken former CEO of Down Syndrome Ireland and currently Vice President of the European Disability Forum. Hello again, Pat. How
6: are you, Jerry? How are you keeping?
2: I'm keeping well, and I hope you're keeping well yourself too. Pat, I suppose Indeed. you're with us to say to listeners today it's been a torrid time for charities, the length and breadth of the country, and the local branches, Loudmead branch of uh, Down Syndrome Ireland. No exception, Pat.
6: Indeed. Oh, no, definitely not. It's been a horrid time. Uh, for the last uh, the better part of eighteen months now at this stage, and just things are not looking any better, but hopefully this initiative now with with Mason pound the pavements will be um will generate a lot of funds that will enable the branch to continue uh, offering the services that it has that are so vital to families here in the northeast,
2: East. Mm, and an, an anomaly, Pat, like it t- takes in excess of 150000 and the majority of that money are raised by parents and friends and fundraisers and it goes directly to the Louth and me, there
6: Correct. is. Correct. Uh, no, the, the branch is one of the most innovative branches within Down Syndrome Ireland and it is offering sort of a, a lot of innovative services in the locality uh, that... Families um, need, and that our children and young adults with Down syndrome uh, benefit from.
2: And Pat, like uh, when you when you talk about your time as CEO and your long term involvement here here with the local branch uh, as well, you know uh, the monies are going to programs that are so beneficial to the children.
6: Well, that's it exactly, Jerry. And um, no, the programs like including the home teacher. Uh, the ability programs, and all those sort of programs that are available to the parents wouldn't be available uh, without the intervention of the branch and the work that they do and the fundraising that they do. Um, the branch has been around since, since around 1987. Uh, it began originally as a Mead branch uh, and it was started over in Trim um, when I was living there. Uh, we, before that there was nothing in the area and anybody from Mead or even Loud would have had to travel to Dublin where there was, was, was the only branch that was in the region mm. and then uh, after that uh, into the 19, early 1990s when I moved to Drogheda um, we uh, we went to set up a branch in Loud and while there was great interest at the time it was decided that the the branch of the, the families in the locality would be best served if we just had the one branch rather than two separate branches, and that's the way it's been ever since. And um, it's been um, it's been it's been very good uh, for all the families in the area, and um, they've uh, oh and but it's um. It's a lifeline to all the families.
2: Mm, and uh, it's great that the two counties are as one on this and and, and working mm-hmm. together. Your yes. own son, David, a, a very familiar man, sure he, Lord, he's a great guy. You used to meet him when he was out front with Tesco. How is he a what's he up to? I haven't seen him oh, in a while. Well, that's because he's
6: been, well, sort of promoted. He's now working three days a week with Tesco. That was one of the benefits of COVID for him. And they needed extra staff, so they gave David an extra day. And um, but he's now in charge of all the recycling of the waste packaging materials uh, in Tesco. So he's out in the back store, and the only time you might see him in the in the front office is out, sort of ensuring that all the cardboard and stuff is gathered up and brought out to him to make sure that he's kept busy. Yeah. And um, so that's what he's at. No, he's working away. Um, he's now working uh, four days a week. He's three days in Tesco, and he works with another company in uh, Dublin on a Tuesday. So he's kept busy. Has, has remained active all the way through the um, through the lockdown and mm. um, kept going to work. Uh, masks up and get masks up and gets on with it. Yeah. Um, and at one point, I think at the very beginning of it, when he started the extra day. Uh, his sister put up a tweet about David doing extra work, etc., etc., and it had nearly 18,000 likes Hmm. went all over the shop. It just trended all over the place. So David has kept going, he's kept busy, uh, and he's actually out there pounding the pavements. He does two walks every day when he's not working, On the days he doesn't work, he's out and he goes out for an hour's walk uh, around the the locality here twice a day for the, for the, the...
2: Ah, oh, fantastic! Will you wish him well? I, I I always had a word with him when I when I met him in the store, and it's great yeah. here. He's on the cutting edge now because we know the green economy, the recycling, and he can only imagine the packaging he has to deal with with the yeah, amount of goods that go through Tesco in a day, well, never mind a week.
6: There's, he, he's kept busy. He
2: he's surely is. Busy. And 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 the thing is, Pat. To take from this, David is a real example of a chap who you know, with the help of the Loudmead branch of Down syndrome. Is where he is today.
6: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so David was the, the inspiration for setting it up. Um, after David was born in 1981, we were the only place we could get any service was up in Dublin, so we had to travel up and down to Dublin, and the roads weren't as good uh, then mm. as they as they are now. So, like it was an hour, it was over an hour from Dublin from Trim up there, and we felt that there was a need to have. A branch of service in the the general locality. So, put an ad in the Mead Chronicles. Had a a, quite a few parents turned up, and it sort of it's just continued on from there.
2: Yeah, it's Um, cool, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, Uh, it's a wonderful success story. It really is, Pat. So look at. Uh, if you want to join David Clark and so many others pounding the pavements I want to remind you again you can register and make a real difference on myresults.com myresults.com it's a 10 or 20 for a family 21 kilometers between now and the 30th of June get out there and uh, give a dig out you won't miss uh, the, the wee time that'll be involved in that and you'll be doing real good for yourself and for the Loudmead branch of Down Syndrome Ireland and more details of course available here on lmfm.ie one of the best Pat Clark thank you for joining me on the show take care
6: Jerry take care
2: bye 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 what a wonderful man Pat is he really is I had the pleasure of um, studying with Pat for a number of years at uh, the uh, University of Ulster in Belfast he's a top, top man pound the pavements come on let's get going and raise much needed funds for a wonderful local organisation that's a lot on Late Lunch this Monday afternoon tomorrow Paul Moyni I think we'll be saying farewell to Paul shortly because uh, the situation is looking good fingers crossed but we'll be talking to him tomorrow on the show Tony Conlon is here as well oh he's a brand new Skoda he's been driving in and, and more besides Artist of the Week and lots more coming your way from 1.30 Tuesday afternoon on Late Lunch. Paul McKenna is up next with The Drive. We'll see you tomorrow at half one. Take care. Have a lovely evening. Bye. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. We have the biggest range of light commercials in the northeast. With same-day business finance, so let our van specialist, Danny, find the commercial vehicle
3: to suit your requirements. See blackstonemotors.ie